So David writes Psalm 54 uh, while he's experiencing the activities in 1 Samuel 23 and 24, which will be the text for our sermon this morning. Before we turn there, let's pause again and pray. Father, we look to you now. What good news that our standing before you is not based on our own works of righteousness and goodness. We look instead to the finished work of Christ. And his work empowers us to live lives of obedience that bring you glory. Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would help us to see how you and the Son and the Father work together for our deliverance from every and any enemy that we face. And often you bring deliverance in the circumstances of our lives as we walk through them, but we also know that full and complete and eternal deliverance will be ours when we step into your eternal kingdom. And so help us to trust you while we wait. Lift up Christ this morning. Lift up the gospel of our salvation this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. Washington's crossing of the Delaware to attack German soldiers in New Jersey almost failed before it began. And it needed to succeed after the stinging, repeated defeats in New York over the last three or four months. Now, everything hinged on timing for this attack on Trenton to be successful. Washington wanted his army to show up well before dawn, before 5 a.m. on December 26, in order to catch the German mercenary army by surprise. And to do that, he knew it would take them five hours at least to march from the ferry crossing at the Delaware down to Trenton, which means he needed his army across the Delaware River by midnight. And he worked backwards from that and determined as soon as the sun went down on Christmas Day, the army needed to get in the boats and get across the river. But as soon as the army began to assemble on that Christmas afternoon, the temperatures dropped dramatically. The rain and the sleet and the snow began to fall. And it was already going to be hard enough to get this army full of infantry, cavalry, and artillery across the icy Delaware River. It was already going to be hard, even on a clear night. And so Washington, after he crossed the Delaware and sat on the New Jersey side, he, he sat down on a log and he considered his options. He was hours behind schedule and he knew he would lose the element of surprise. So do they continue down to Trenton or do they turn around and cross over the river? Washington called on them to march. And so they marched through the snowstorm, which made the march, the five-hour march, agonizingly slow. The slush and the mud on the road and the rain and the sleet in the sky soaked the army, many of which weren't wearing shoes. The cannons needed to be braced by ropes and soldiers every time they went down just a little incline because the wheels and the cannons would crush the horses. Now, if you were Washington in the middle of that march, what would you have been tempted to feel? Of all the nights, why tonight did we need to face this huge nor'easter. 
The bitter snowstorm was ruining the chances to turn the war, and the cause needed a turn. They had faced three or four months of bitter defeats in New York, and it was not a foregone conclusion that our independence would actually come to pass. The surprise attack was the key variable to defeat these German regular soldiers encamped at Trenton. Washington needed that surprise, and now they were hours behind schedule. But Washington couldn't know that the stormy circumstances were also working to his advantage. Contrary to common opinion, the Hessian soldiers in Trenton were on high alert. They had been experiencing harassment from American militia all week long. And so they dutifully got up at dawn and they did their morning patrols and then they retreated back into their homes around their fires. You see, the storm delayed the effect of the sunrise. It also obscured the view and the sound of the approaching American army. And so though Washington arrived absurdly late and behind schedule, Washington got his surprise that morning. The snowstorm that delayed his army also worked in his favor. And in Washington's snowstorm, we have a helpful illustration of what we so often experience in this life. We usually cannot see through the circumstances of our lives to see what God is orchestrating. We don't see the whole picture. He brings hardships. He permits delays. And we are left processing the mystery of it all in the middle of the snowstorm. And it's in those moments where, as his people, we march on by faith. This is David's challenge this morning. He has experienced God's anointing. He knows that he's going to be king over Israel, but the circumstances seem to run in direct contradiction to all of that. God's promises and God's purposes do not seem to be moving forward. In fact, they seem to be slowing to a halt. And it's in the snowstorm of David's circumstances that he experiences the miraculous deliverance of the Lord. Here's our main idea this morning. Look to the Lord. Look to the Lord to deliver us from every enemy. Think about the trouble that you're facing this morning. Jesus promises deliverance one way or another from every one of those enemies. And this morning, there are three ways that God is revealed as our deliverer to add some texture to what it means for God to be our deliverer. The first one in chapter 23, verses 1 through 13, we see the Lord is our Father who answers prayer. The Lord is our Father who answers prayer. It's one of the ways that He is our deliverer. Now, this slide on the screen will show you that we're beginning today in the city of Keilah. This is an Israelite city owned by the tribe of Judah, David's tribe, and it's number 10 on the map, if you can see it there. Now, as you can see, this city is close to the border of Philistia, and therefore it's vulnerable to attacks from the Philistine army. Look at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 23. Now, they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah, from Saul. How much more then if we go into Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? And then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hands. 
And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now the Philistines are coming at harvest time to steal the grain of the Israelites. And David is growing. David hears of this and his first instinct is to pray. He doesn't merely rush into the fray and assume that God wants him to act. He pauses to pray, Lord, are you in this? Lord, do you want me to go down and defeat the Philistines? And then when his men are afraid, David doesn't abandon the cause that God has given him. He prays again, perhaps to confirm that he's heard correctly. And when God greenlights him a second time, David leads his men despite their fears And the Lord delivered the city of Keilah through the swords of David and his men. Now, verse 6 seems random to the flow of thought. Look at it. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now, verse 7. Now, it was told to Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hands, for he has shut himself up in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah and to besiege David and his men. Now, verse 6 seems random, but I think what the Holy Spirit is doing here is clarifying that the priesthood is with David, not with Saul. Saul has the audacity to assume that the Lord has delivered David into his hand, even though the Lord has completely rejected Saul and Saul has completely rejected the Lord. Now, he's going to Keilah, Saul is, not to protect the Israelites who are being attacked from the Philistines, his job as king. Instead, he's coming to capture and kill David, a fellow Israelite. Well, David hears the news, and again, he prays. Look at verse 9. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, remember him from last week, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Now here's the question. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. David calls on Abiathar the priest, the one who escaped from Nob, the only one of Ahimelech's descendants who escaped. And Abiathar puts on the ephod, which is like a a shoulder cape made of linen that the priest would put on and officially inquire of the Lord. What do you want us to do, Lord? And so David uses the ephod to seek the Lord and the Lord answers him. Yes, David, the men of Keilah will give you over to Saul. Verse 13. Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. And when Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition. Now, God is not merely a creator who creates. God is not merely a judge who pronounces forgiveness. Jesus taught his disciples to pray and address God as Father. When we trust Jesus, we become sons and daughters. Last week, Ezra wanted to play truth or dare at dinner. And so I dared him 
to close his eyes, to open his mouth, and to eat whatever I put in his mouth. (laughs) Now, I could have put a lot of things in there, but as a good father, I know how to give good gifts. And so he ate chocolate. In Matthew 7, 11, Jesus says, if you then who are evil, if you human mothers and fathers who struggle with sin, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus invites us to call God father. And it's an invitation to hold fast to our father when trouble in our life comes. He is a father who answers prayer. And so we must pray. We must pray persistently. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks will be opened. If you find yourself in trouble this morning, don't give up. Pray persistently to your Father who answers prayers. Pray persistently. Secondly, pray unceasingly. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't give up and pray unceasingly. Let your life be one long conversation with the Lord. Number three, pray secretly. In Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray secretly, pray quietly to the Lord. And then number four, pray confidently. In 1 John 5, 14, John says, This is the confidence that we have toward him, God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Pray according to the Lord's will. Ask the Father to execute his will in your life. Ask to pray according to his will and watch him act in your life. We have a Father who answers prayer. This is a way that he acts as our deliverer. Praying teaches us to trust our Father to give us exactly what we need, to trust him to give the good gifts, to give the bread, to give the fish. And we gain strength and joy and comfort from his presence. In the days following the battle at Trenton, the American army needed to retreat in an orderly way across a narrow bridge. And so they're retreating under heavy fire and they're funneling into this narrow bridge. And the men are obviously scared because they're completely outmatched by the British army and their Hessian mercenaries. And Washington, seeing what's happening, spurs his horse and gallops up to the far end of the bridge, the side of the bridge that the men are trying to get to. And he stands his horse right at the side of the bridge. And as the men look at Washington, with the bullets and the artillery flying in their backs, they feel the sense of calm that his very presence produces. If this man, whose life is worth this much, is willing to come up and stand with us on his horse, will the confidence 
of his presence rubbed off on the men. They could feel the warmth of his horse as they walked by. They could touch his riding boots as they walked by. Jesus invites to call God, invites us to call God Father. Jesus is interceding for us at the Father's right hand. Jesus sends his spirit to groan on our behalf when we don't even know what to pray for. Pray. The Lord is our Father who answers prayers. That's one of the ways that he is our deliverer. Second way, the Lord is our helper who upholds our lives. 1 Samuel 23, verses 14 to 29. The Lord is our helper. It's easier. The Lord is our helper. It's the same word that God gave for Eve in the garden. The Lord is our strong helper. Now, we find ourselves here in the wilderness regions around the city of Ziph, number 11 on the map, and Maon, number 12 on the map. In verses 14 and 15, Saul is searching desperately for David, but David is well hidden, and the Lord refuses to deliver David into the hands of Saul. Look at verse 16 of chapter 23. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan strengthened David's hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Now this is the final recorded meeting we have between Jonathan and David, and its effect is powerful. Jonathan was able to strengthen the hands of David in the Lord. Just take that image in. We would forgive David for feeling a little shaky about God's plans and purposes and promises. And Jonathan comes and strengthens David's hands in the Lord. He reminds him of what everyone knows to be true. Saul, David, and Jonathan, they all know that David will be king. The circumstances may not seem to be moving in that direction, but God's purposes will stand in the end. At the proper time, David will be exalted by God's mighty hand, and he'll sit on the throne just as God promised. And Jonathan tells us and David that he longs to be next to him. But for now, David must walk by faith in the promises of God. Whose hands need to be strengthened in the Lord by you this morning? After this service ends, and you're in this room talking, or you're in that room talking, whose hands need to be strengthened in the Lord? This week, as you pray for one another, how can you strengthen one another's hands in the Lord? Ask God to help you offer strong biblical encouragement that will strengthen one another's grip on the promises of God. Encouragement that will steady our confidence in God's trustworthiness. No matter the snowstorm, no matter the trouble, God is at work in ways that we cannot always see. Strengthen one another's hands in the Lord. And David's going to need this encouragement because his own tribesmen from Judah are about to betray him. Look at verse 19. Then the Ziphites, these are Israelites of the tribe of Judah, went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakalilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down. And our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, 
for you have had compassion on me. That should make us shudder. How presumptuous of Saul to reject the Lord at every turn and then pronounce the Lord's blessing on the people of Ziph. Saul says in 22, go make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is and who has seen him there. For it is told to me that he is very cunning. See therefore and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search for him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now verse 25. And Saul and his men went to seek him, and David was told, so that he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. So he moves from the outskirts of Ziph to the outskirts of Maon. And when Saul heard it, he pursued David after he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. And Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. So the aerial view of what's happening here, we look down and we see this mountain. And on one side, David and his 600 men. And on the other side, Saul and his chosen men. And Saul is closing in on David. He's closing in. And at the right moment, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry, come. For the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Now, God orchestrates a Philistine raid of the land at just the right time so that everyone who's seeing this understands God's miraculous power. Just the right time. And Saul, for his part, must go chase the hyenas out of the pride land. That was a Lion King joke. <laughs> now, David, as he processes this betrayal by his own tribesmen, his own clansmen, he writes Psalm 54 that Ava read earlier. He's processing this betrayal. It's titled in your Bibles this way, The Lord upholds my life to the choir master with stringed instruments a maskal or a wise thought of David. When the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now listen to David's groaning in Psalm 54. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. When the trouble comes, David turns to the Lord who he's come to trust. God has earned David's trust. And so David looks to him. You are the one who saves. You are the one who will vindicate me. You are the one who hears my prayers. And so you are the one that I pray to. He's praying in verse 3, For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. He's talking of Saul and everyone with him and the Ziphites. But behold, despite what these ruthless men who don't set God before them do, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, God put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you and I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Now here's the reality of a man after God's own heart. 
Has trouble come? Yes, trouble has come. But where does David turn? To the one who is his helper, the one who upholds his life. And he's turning to the one, verse 7 of Psalm 54, who has delivered me from every trouble and my eyes looked in triumph on my enemies. It may look like the odds are stacked against us sometimes. But God always overpowers the odds. He faithfully executes his purposes in our life. For example, Paul in 2 Timothy 4, he stands before the Roman emperor ready to give a defense and he says, Timothy, everyone has deserted me. I stand alone before the emperor. After all Paul has done for the churches, he stands alone to give a defense before the emperor. And he says, but don't hold it against them. And then in 2 Timothy 4.18, he says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, every one of them, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We may look in this life on some of the ways that God brings deliverance in our circumstances in the here and now. We may look in triumph on our enemies sometimes in this life, but there will be a day when every enemy that stood against us, when we will look at every enemy that stood against us and we will see Christ's triumph over them. Not one enemy will be loose against us. The Lord is our helper who upholds our life. Now, the third thing we see in chapter 24 is that the Lord is our judge who guarantees justice. It's the third way that he is our deliverer. On the slide, we're now at number 13, the wilderness of En Gedi. Saul has chased away the Philistines and now he's returned to David to hunt David down. He grabs 3,000 of his chosen warriors and he sets out to confront David in the wilderness of En Gedi. Look at verse 3 of chapter 24. And Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do it, do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Saul's on the hunt. Saul needs to use the restroom. Saul goes into this cave, and in God's providence, it's the cave where David and his men are hiding. Now, David's men, what they say here about what God said is not recorded in 1 Samuel. So they're either misapplying what God said, or maybe there's something we haven't read. Probably they're misapplying it. But they say, here, God's delivered him to you. Go get him, David. And so David moves forward, and he cuts off the corner of Saul's robe. But immediately... He feels guilty for what he's done. Look at verse 5. Afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Just take, take note of how many times Lord's anointed is used here. To put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David pursu- persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. David is honoring Saul's position, even though Saul is dishonorable. 
David will confront Saul for his dishonor. He's not covering and ignoring his sin. He's going to do that in a few minutes. But he's also honoring Saul for the position that he holds. He is the anointed king of Israel. David will be, is anointed and will be king soon. But Saul was also anointed by the Lord. And so David shows respect for the position that Saul holds. Now verse 8. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you though you hunt my life to take it. Saul, I don't care what the narrative is. You've been believing this narrative for months. I don't care what it is. It's not connected to reality. If it was, you would be dead because it's not true because I'm not seeking your life. In my hand is the corner of your robe. Let that settle it. But there's more that David needs to say. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between me and you, Saul. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb, Proverbs, as the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul has been mockingly calling David the son of Jesse for like four chapters. Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He is so filled with rage. He doesn't know what to do with grace. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day have you, how, how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? This is remarkable. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. David is acting like a king and Saul knows it. 
Saul knows that this is how he should be acting as the king of Israel, but he's rejected the Lord and the Lord has rejected him and the spirit of God has departed from him. And so all Saul has left is verse 21. Swear to me, therefore, David, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul and then Saul went home but David and his men went to the stronghold. As our deliverer, the Lord is our judge. He's a father who answers prayer. He's a helper who upholds our lives, and he is the deliverer. He is the judge who guarantees justice. The one who was condemned in our place rose from the dead sits at the right hand of the, of the Father and will return to establish his reign on the whole earth. And he will look upon all those who are on the earth and he will reward the good and he will punish the bad. And Jesus' just reign is what provides the release valve when those good cravings for justice swell up in our hearts. Look to the Lord who guarantees justice of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish justice and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9, 7. The Lord is our judge who guarantees justice. I know how tempting it is to take justice into our own hands. David waits on the Lord. David looks to the Lord. David trusts the Lord to bring justice in the Lord's timing. It doesn't mean David never acts. He prays, he seeks the Lord, and there are times when God tells David to act. But knowing that God is a just judge causes David to pray and to seek the Lord and to wait on the Lord who will guarantee justice in the end. But Cherry Dale, I don't know the twists and turns of how God will lead us as a church family. I don't know what trouble he will permit in our life together. I don't know how our enemy will plot against us. I don't know how our sin will manifest in our community. But I do know that in God we have a strong deliverer, one who works for his glory and our good in every trouble, a father who answers prayers, a helper who upholds life, a judge who guarantees justice. He's given us his word and the gospel it proclaims. He's given us prayer and the powerful relationship it provides. And he's given us a local church and the burden-sharing gracious that it produces. So look to the Lord to deliver us from every enemy. No snowstorm, no trouble, no circumstance is outside of God's control. He's at work for your deliverance and mine. Many times we experience that deliverance in this life. He just acts and we experience him. But if not, he will usher us 
into his eternal glory and we will see the triumph of Jesus over every enemy. And we will rejoice on that day over what he's done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our deliverer. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for your work to provide deliverance. Lord, we thank you that you're a Father who answers prayers. You're a helper who upholds our life. And you're a judge who guarantees justice. And we look to you with joy and anticipation. Amen.